Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Politics. I'm your host, Bill Scher. Today, we are talking to Matt Lewis. Welcome to New Books in Politics. I'm your host, Bill Scher. Today, we are talking to Matt Lewis and his book, Too Dumb to Fail. Uh, Matt, thanks for being on. Thank you. This book was published by Hachette uh, initially before the 2016 presidential election, but uh, uh, published in paperback in 2017 uh, about your analysis of the Republican Party and the conservative movement. Uh, What prompted you to write this book? So actually, I'd been thinking about these ideas since about 2010, when I was a columnist for the now defunct AOL Politics Daily website. And I was covering things like um, Sarah Palin at that point was beginning to kind of radicalize. She changed even from her 2008 vice presidential uh, candidate persona and started going to tea parties and becoming more populist, more nationalist. And there was also several uh, candidates um, who were emerging for U.S. Senate, people like Christine O'Donnell, who really weren't the kind of conservatives that I had grown up with. They weren't really espousing Reagan conservatism, they were espousing something different, more populist, more nationalist. And um, it didn't really jibe with with my version of conservatism. It was more, uh, it also played on, on things like victimhood and identity politics, things that, that I, up, up until that point, I had criticized as being um, characteristics of the left. And all of a sudden, I saw Republicans adopting it. So I started thinking about the book then. I think I got the book deal around Halloween of 2014. And of course, I had no idea that <laughs> that Donald Trump would end up emerging as the Republican nominee and then the president. Um, so the name Too Dumb to Fail actually ended up being perfect because <laughs> it ended up uh, the, the ideas, which I call dumb, uh, did in fact succeed, at least electorally. Uh, so what what was your bottom line uh, analysis and counsel before the 2016 election? And did you have to alter it when the paperback version came out in 2017? No, I mean, basically what the book is, it's a call uh, to conservatives to uh, to get smart, to quit being anti-intellectual, to embrace conservative philosophy. So this is not a book that that urged Republicans or conservatives to moderate per se. Um, it did urge them to to be smart and um, and to look to people like Edmund Burke instead of people like uh, Donald Trump. Um, and and so that's actually where it differs. There were a lot of people who've written books in the past, essentially saying conservatives or Republicans could win if they would just quit being conservative. That's not what this book was, but. Uh, 
and really the book was broken, if you think about it, into, into three sections. So I, I was making an argument that conservatism needed to return to its intellectual roots. And it occurred to me, a lot of my readers may not realize that it actually had intellectual roots. So the first part of the book was kind of establishing that premise. Um, then I went into the part about where the right went wrong uh, to, <laughs> to cite another name of another book uh, with a similar hypothesis. And I kind of diagnosed uh, that trajectory all you know of, of, of the dumbing down of conservatism. And then, of course, the last part of the book was the, the uh, optimistic look forward, what conservatives could do if they took my advice, because I feel like if they don't take my advice, uh, there's a real demographic challenge that they're going to face, uh, even in the short term, if they can win in the long run. Uh, not taking my advice will we'll spell electoral doom. Um, and so the last part was sort of a look forward um, and, and trying to give them a roadmap, which, of course, they promptly ignored. So how does your version of intellectual conservatism, as you detail in your book, Too Dumb to Fail, how does that differ from Donald Trump's version of conservatism, which I assume you would uh, uh, classify as anti-intellectual? Yes. Well, I mean, first of all, Donald Trump, his political background is very checkered to begin with. I mean, he's been a Democrat. He's been a donor to Hillary Clinton. Um, and so he's he was critical of of Ronald Reagan, uh, even though he also has been pro Republican, too. So he's been all over the he's been all over the map. So that's part of it. I've been pretty con- I've been a consistent conservative. Um, I, I would say that that it's a couple things. There are policy differences, to be sure. For example, um, you know, I'm very skeptical of Russia, apparently. <laughs> Donald Trump is not. I'm a free marketer in the tradition of Reagan and, and modern conservatism. I mean, of course, you know, conservatives at one point supported protectionist tariffs. But in the modern era, in the Reagan era, um, we've been free marketers and free traders. And that that's where I am. Um, but I think a lot of it is also uh, temperamental, stylistic, and and having to do with character. You know, Ronald Reagan was very presidential, um, very, uh, very. Um, you know, he was a great communicator. So he was, a, you know, compare that to Donald Trump's rhetoric and tweets, which are, uh, are, are lack the civility and and the the coherence that that Reagan had. So there's that element of it. Um, and then I, there's the moral angle, too. Of course, the Republican Party and the conservative movement uh, for a long time were the party of Christian conservatives. And um, Donald Trump has certainly broken with that trend as well, although he is supported by a lot of evangelicals. Uh, he has not lived the kind of lifestyle that, um, you know, when I was coming up, you were told that politicians that their lifestyles mattered and that that's why Bill Clinton had to be impeached. And um, now you have a lot of hypocrisy, of course, on that issue as well. Uh, one, one chapter in your book uh, talks about how the Republican Party's shift uh, southward. It used to be that Southerners all vote a Democrat. Uh, and that began to change with Richard Nixon's Southern strategy. You argue in the book that the party's nature changed uh, once that pivot occurred, uh, does that help explain how 
uh, evangelicals have uh, changed their outlook in terms of uh, uh, personal moral character and the presidency? Yeah, I think it's, you know, this is a complex stuff and, and, and I, I don't pretend that there's any like one thing that shifted the Republican Party or the conservative movement. But I think it's fair to say that, um, you know, that the Republican Party and the conservative movement wanted to become big enough to become a governing majority. You know, at one point, the conservative movement, believe it or not, was basically intellectuals. And, you know, you you can't win an election if your constituency is solely, you know, people, you know, uh, like Hayek, you know, uh, you need you need ground soldiers, foot soldiers, and you need just masses. You need rank and file members. And so the Republican Party had to add to that coalition. And um, interestingly, I, I, I draw a parallel with immigration. You know, when immigrants come to a country, they bring ideas and diversity and, and numbers. And we need all those things. We need diversity. We need numbers of people. We need uh, ideas and all that. But they also bring some baggage. And it's important that they become assimilated into your country. Well, political parties are very similar. You know, there were immigrants to the Republican Party, and they brought numbers, and they brought a lot of good things with them. Sometimes they also were not assimilated, or they brought some baggage with them into the Republican Party. And I think that in the case of Christian conservatives who joined really uh, en masse after Jimmy Carter, um, and in the wake of Roe versus Wade, so in the 1970s and early 80s, and in the case of of Southerners who essentially many of them fled the Democratic Party in, in the wake of civil rights, uh, as well as the Democratic Party just radicalizing on issues that had nothing to do with race. Um, when that happened, when these groups joined the Republican Party, they gave the Republican Party a governing majority, and you ended up with Ronald Reagan being elected and a lot of us would say that that's a good thing, but they also brought some of their baggage with them. And I think that some of that baggage did sow the seeds for Donald Trump uh, and for the the dumbing down of, of the movement and of the party. And, and basically, uh, it's not the whole story, but it's part of the story as to how we got to where we are today. Uh, another uh, factor in the evolution of the Republican Party and the conservative movement uh, towards an anti-intellectualism. You lay at the feet of uh, conservative talk radio. Can can you explain how you think uh, talk radio, maybe also Fox News, uh, how have they uh, changed the Republican Party and the nature of conservatism from what it was before? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, first I would say I I grew grew up – listening to Rush Limbaugh. Uh, I started in 1988 when he went national. Uh, I, I can't really say grow up. I was like a young teenager. My dad, but my dad turned me on to him. My dad was a big fan and I listened to Rush Limbaugh for years and, and really liked him. And I actually think that, you know, he was much more kind of smart and funny and irreverent back then. Um, but I definitely think that talk radio changed things. And, and some of this goes, there's a, a great classic book called Amusing Ourselves to Death by a guy named Neil Postman. And he essentially argues that every medium has inherent biases in it. And so when people were um, giving speeches, uh, that led to a certain type of, of person excelling. And when people were writing the written word, the written word lends to logic and 
uh, an intellectual debate. And and um, but but TV and mass media and inexorably dumb things down. Um, and and so it doesn't even matter if you're trying to put like uh, educational stuff on TV. The medium itself lends to dumbing things down. And I think that talk radio and Fox News both are sort of uh, products of that, that it inherently dumb things down. Um, yes, it's possible to have someone like a William F. Buckley, the, the great conservative intellectual, have a TV show such as Firing Line, you know, where he uh, debates uh, intellectuals of the day. But inevitably, uh, talk radio and TV become um, sort of catering to the lowest common denominator. And I definitely think we're at that point now. Uh, there was a time, I think, when, you know, um, when it helped kind of uh, it, it was one element of the conservative movement and, and it helped sort of give the movement and the party some ground troops and some excitement. But at some point it, it surpassed the, the the actual Republican Party itself uh, f- for a variety of reasons, uh, has no uh, statutory or moral authority anymore. <laughs> And um, the inmates are now running the asylum, and and so that that's basically where we are. And and I think that um, you know, talk radio started off being kind of a fun little thing uh, that that probably helped the movement and the party, and eventually just overtook it. I'm talking to Matt Lewis, the author of Too Dumb to Fail on the New Books in Politics podcast. Um, you're saying that uh, conservative talk radio has encouraged the Republican Party and the conservative movement to uh, pander to the lowest common denominator. Um, is there an argument that that's working for them? They've, they have won elections. They, the, Donald Trump uh, appealed to the masses, and the, even though he didn't win the popular vote, he won the votes in the states where it counted and got to the White House. So uh, what's wrong with this picture? What, what, what is the danger for the party and the ideological movement if – uh, dumbing down the product is leading to electoral success. Yeah, I mean, you, you've you've pointed out an inherent challenge that people like me, the Cassandras, have, which is to say, it's very difficult to warn somebody, um, you know, hey, there's a danger coming when they when everything's going great, ostensibly, as far as they can tell. Um, they have the Republicans have the presidency and the Senate and and the House of Representatives, um, and they have state legislatures and uh, governorships and the Supreme Court uh, nominee named Neil Gorsuch that's quite good. Even I like him. Um, It's really hard to say, but be careful, beware. Um, You're sowing the seeds of your demise. But there's so many reasons to believe that that's true. And one of them, as I talk about in the book, is is the demographics. Um, you know, the numbers don't lie. And uh, the Donald Trump electorate um, is just really doubling down on almost entirely on cohorts uh, that are diminishing. And simultaneously, he is alienating um, the, the so-called coalition of the ascendant. And so you know, the types of people, demographically speaking, that are growing in America in terms of the trends are less likely to like a Republican Party with Donald Trump as the standard bearer. 
And there's a real danger that the Republican Party is is almost solely the party of, you know, rural, white, old, married men. And at some point, there just aren't enough of them to win elections. And I think so. If you look nationally in terms of demographics, that poses a challenge. And then I would say it's even a problem in terms of the Electoral College because, you know, Republicans have won uh, two presidential elections since 2000 without winning the popular vote. But even electorally, if you start to lose states like Arizona and Nevada, and if a state like Texas becomes competitive, then once Texas goes, and if Texas ever does go, it would become electorally impossible for Republicans to ever win because they're not going to win California or New York if you if you lose Texas as well. So, um, you know, sometimes things can look sometimes things look really bad before you know, darkest before the dawn. Sometimes the opposite is true. You know, <laughs> you're partying, you're celebrating. Everything seems great. Uh, and there is doom sort of lurking. And, and I fear that that's that's uh, the case right now. Uh, one point that you come back to uh, in the book, Too Dumb to Fail, uh, is that politics is downstream from culture. Uh, and in saying that uh, the way that the cultural trends of the country can uh, dictate which which parties can, uh, can win elections and which issues have the best chance of be- becoming uh, turned into law and policy. Uh, is there a... I think your concern in the book was that secular liberal culture was was dominant and that was making things hard for conservatives unless they made a change. Uh, is there a, you know, in, in using your, uh, it, excuse me, uh, is there a sort of an anti-intellectual conservative culture that is very uh, fervent, that fueled Trump's rise? I mean, it's because of uh, what the NRA puts out in terms of, uh, centralizing gun ownership as an, as a symbol of freedom and protection or anti-political correctness, uh, those types of issues. Uh, is that culture so strong uh, that it's hard for Republicans and conservatives to make a change, even if, as you say, the demographics sh- should demand it? Yeah, no, it, it's um, the incentives are perverse. And, um, you know, when you have a product, you 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 keep selling that product as long as people are buying it and as long as you're winning. And so as long as Republicans are winning elections, there will be no, uh, no reason, no incentive for them to, to change people usually only, and think about this. I mean, I, in my book, I compare it to like an alcoholic, you know, usually people have to hit rock bottom before they actually are willing to, uh, to make the changes that they need to make. And so I think there's a lot of stuff out there that um, whether it's talk radio or the kind of Facebook emails that like your grandmother may or may not forward you um, that, that are just aesthetically uh, turnoffs to, to a lot of, of younger, you know, millennials and, and other people. That's, that's sort of a problem. Um, this is not a new challenge. I mean, um, even though the Republican Party has done pretty well electorally, they've basically surrendered, you know, what you would call the culture. And, and by that, I mean, you know, the entertainment media, the news media, academia, um, and, and now even sports is becoming an area which had predominantly been fairly conservative 
Um, and now even that is the left is, is, is really beginning to sort of take that over. And, and we see some of that in the Donald Trump uh, culture wars with the NFL. Um, I do see some bright spots, however, you know, um, I think there are a lot of a lot of challenges and downsides uh, having to do with with the Internet. Uh, we've seen the rise of fake news and there's a lot of like really bad things that have come out of um, the the disintermediation that we've seen take place and the the fracturing of media. But I, I do think that there are some good signs. And, and I'll give you an example. Um, what I'm seeing with people like podcasts, like like um, Joe Rogan and Adam Carolla and having people like Jordan Peterson, uh, who is a I guess you would call him a conservative intellectual. And um, he puts out these he's, he's a college professor in Toronto and he puts out these YouTube videos that, that are that really are going viral. Uh, he's got a book out. Um, and he pushes back against political correctness, but I think in a way that's not the politics of victimhood as much as it is, um, uh, you know, utterly defensible and intellectual. So the, I see some good things happening, um, and, and and I'm hoping it's not really optimism, but there's a hope that we're going to see uh, more good things like that and less of the uh, the stupid Republican uh, dumb, dumbing down stuff. Uh, in in the book Too Dumb to Fail, you uh, you dedicate a chapter to Ronald Reagan. Uh, he's long been a touchstone for conservatives, a model for other conservatives to follow, not just for his uh, ideological uh, commitment, but also for a sunny disposition. Uh, is is that a useful model in the twenty first century, or in in a in a post Trump? Republican Party conservative movement um, does Reagan make as much sense for conservatives to look towards as 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 an example? I mean, I would say yes and no. I, I don't think it makes sense uh, to um, to look back. You know, in, in a way, looking back is inherently a bad idea. Ronald Reagan admired Calvin Coolidge, but he didn't talk about Calvin Coolidge all the time. Um, he also admired FDR. Uh, that was probably his political hero. But, you know, he also realized that it's about the future. Um, and so I think that it is possible to get too hung up on sort of hearkening back to a bygone era. And, and I may be guilty of that sometimes because I'm a big fan of Ronald Reagan. Um, I think that that Reagan, you know, was incredibly well read was incredibly articulate, was, was optimistic. Um, and, you know, if you look back at some of the things he, you know, look at some of those Peggy Noonan speeches, uh, the challenger disaster speech, you know, slip the surly bonds of earth to touch the face of God. It's poetic stuff. I mean, it was a Steven Spender, uh, reference he made there. So by definition, poetic and look at the D-Day, some of those, he gave, I think two different speeches, uh, on the anniversary of D-Day. Uh, that were just terrific. These are the boys of Point Du Hoke or Point. Uh, I never pronounced that right, but um, great, great stuff. You can't really imagine Donald Trump uh, with his American carnage <laughs> rhetoric summoning us to our better angels in quite the same way. So, look, I think that you know every every movement, every party uh, needs heroes. I mean, you know, the, the Democrats love Wilson and FDR and and Kennedy. Uh, Reagan, you know, Republicans have Reagan and Lincoln, 
Uh, and I think it's, it's, it's appropriate, but I also think there is a danger uh, of, of, of sort of looking backward too much. And so I think the key is to, um, to take the principles and the lessons you can derive from your heroes, but apply them to the future. You know, the challenges that Ronald Reagan faced, including winning the Cold War, are not the same challenges that we face, although I'd say Russia is still a problem. But um, we have to apply some of those principles, but in a way that, that I think resonates and, and is relevant to a 21st century world. Uh, you, you referenced earlier uh, that uh, your book, Too Dumb to Fail, uh, is encouraging people to uh, build upon a foundation of conservative intellectualism uh, and that people may not know what that foundation is. So uh, what do you want people to know? Uh, people who think that conservatism is, is inherently anti-intellectual, what, what do you do in the book to, to disabuse them of that notion? Well, I really trace it back to, you know, you, you could go all the way back to Aristotle if you want. But I think that Edmund Burke is a pretty good place to start. And uh, the the debate between Thomas Paine and Edmund Burke over the French Revolution. For those who might not know, who, who is Edmund Burke? So Edmund Burke was a British parliamentarian uh, in the uh, 18th century. And he was very pro-American. He was very in favor of the American Revolution. And that's why he was friends with Thomas Paine. But he began to really fear and, and warn about the French Revolution. Um, which a lot of people like Thomas Paine saw as a continuation of the American Revolution. They believe that it was liberty uh, going up against, you know, authoritarianism and, and uh, monarchy and that this was going to be a great trend that liberated people. And Paine really warned that, no, um, they're trying to reinvent the world. As, as Paine said, we have the ability to make the world over again. Well, Edmund Burke said that's an incredibly scary and dangerous thing to try to do. What we should be doing is building on the wisdom of the past, of tradition. You know, Edmund Burke would say that um, that history was a, a process of us sort of learning and growing and adapting and evolving and keeping the best practices and getting rid of the things that didn't work. And you can't throw that all out and try to reinvent the world all over. And indeed, Many of Edmund Burke's warnings about that ended up manifesting themselves in the Russian Revolution, where they overturned, you know, capitalism and the church and tradition. And every time this has been tried, whether it's the French Revolution or the Russian Revolution, it it, it, it has a pretty bloody ending. So Edmund Burke, I think, and most people, I think most conservatives agree, is is, is the uh, the founding the modern day founding father of conservatism. And there was a book in the 20th century uh, by a guy named Russell Kirk called that, that, that basically uh, coined the term conservatism and, and named uh, Edmund Burke as our, you know, our founding father. And so I think that that's a good place. If, if, if you're a young conservative out there, uh, who's looking for you know that intellectual founding of the left and right? Um, that's a good place to start. Um, you've you've all of it, and, and and I would recommend a book uh, by Yuval Levin called uh, "The Great Debate." That is a very easy and short read, 
my book, Too Dumb to Fail, uh, has a chapter on this. But if you're interested, uh, the great debate will, will give you a lot of the backstory about Thomas Paine versus Edmund Burke. So if if Burkean conservatism uh, uh, rejects radical revolution, radical change, um, is Trump the first break with that style of conservatism? Or can you look at uh, what George W. Bush did in going into Iraq or how Newt Gingrich tried to push through uh, dramatic uh, changes in uh, uh, the scope of the federal government? Um, or even Ronald, or did Ronald Reagan push too hard in certain ways? Uh, it, where do you think the conservative movement started to uh, become removed from that Burkean approach? Well, first, I would say American conservatism has always been unique um, and different from European conservatism. And so um, there have always been... Um, you know, conservatives who are are more you know radical because we don't have that that tradition of of monarchy and uh, we we were started as a revolution, so um, it's always been a little more complicated. You know, I mentioned you know I mentioned uh, the line um, we have it in our ability to remake the world that Thomas Paine line that Ronald Reagan would cite, which greatly angered conservatives like George Will. Who saw that as a very unconservative and radical thing to say? You know, I think calling it the Gingrich or the Republican Revolution was um, an unBurkean thing <laughs> to call it. Um, I and I would also concede that in hindsight, the um, the the attempts at the the attempts at spreading democracy are very unBurkean. Anybody who is a you know, who really read and understood Edmund Burke's version of conservatism would have been very skeptical of the notion that you could export democracy, right? So even in the case of America, I mean, look, you know, what is it? Uh, from from the signing of the Magna Carta, you know, in Great Britain up until the American Revolution, and then you had, we had frankly had to fight a civil war as well. Uh, we have like, hundreds of years of trying to finally get liberal democracy right and to get and to arrive where we where we are. Um, the idea that we could take a group of people who have no tradition of democracy, uh, it's not part of their culture. It's not a racial thing. It's a cultural thing. The idea that you could export elections and democracy and expect it to take root when it took us hundreds of years and countless bloodshed uh you know, it was a very naive and, and unconservative idea. And um, I think it's it's evidence of the fact that George W. Bush and the people who were um, advocating that idea did not either understand or agree with with uh, what we would actually call conservative orthodoxy. Uh, one of the, your chapters in Too Dumb to Fail uh, talks about the vultures uh, people who are in the conservative movement not to advance the great cause of conservatism, but seemingly just out to make a buck. Uh, can you tell us more about uh, who those figures are and what role are they playing in the conservative movement today? Yeah, so this kind of goes to the title of the book, Too Dumb to Fail, which is, of course, a play on words of, of the Andrew Ross Sorkin book, Too Big to Fail. And Too Big to Fail, the theory, of course, was that there are 
were these perverse incentives where financial institutions could take risks knowing that that if things went wrong, they wouldn't have to pay the price. And I saw a similar dynamic in the conservative movement where you had these perverse incentives. You know, if you're a politician and you say crazy things, you go up in the polls. If you're a conservative commentator and you say crazy things, you get more Twitter followers and sell more books and get better ratings. And so um, there were these perverse incentives and the kinds of people who, it's funny, uh, Hayek had a line uh, in, in The Road to Serfdom where he said, in a totalitarian regime, the worst get on top. And that's basically the state of that conservatism had gotten to. You know, it, 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 it started off as a, as a movement, turned into a business, it ended up as a racket, uh, to paraphrase another author. So um, that's where we had arrived at. Look, there had always been showmen. Conservatives have always had to be, you know, one part William F. Buckley, one part P.T. Barnum. And we all are, if you want to get ahead. Not just conservatives, anybody. This is show business to some degree. But you, you should care more about the country, more about the cause than, than about, you know, your own personal uh, ambition. And, and that had gotten out of whack. I have to tell you, it was one of the most eye-opening things that ever happened to me in my life was coming to Washington, being part of the conservative movement, and to my utter dismay, discovering that so many people, and I would say even a majority of the leaders of the conservative movement are shysters, are con artists. I was blown away by that because I had really assumed that it, the only people who would want to be in the conservative movement were true believers because I always figured like being a conservative is hard work. It's kind of lame if you want to get chicks, if you want to like be popular, if you want to be cool, like be a liberal. But if you, you know, but if you're going to be a conservative, you were signing up as Whitaker Chambers said for the losing cause, you know, the losing side. Um, so why would you do that if, if you were anything other than a true believer? And I was really astonished to discover how many of the people were were con artists and, and, and shysters. It was uh, it was quite disconcerting. And, um, you know, whether it's people who are, you know, columnists or authors who are stirring up controversy just to sell books, or whether it's people who run these scam packs, which are political organizations that, um, that bilk little old ladies out of, out of money uh, to line their pockets, not, not to support politicians or causes. A very, a very small percentage of the money that they raise do that. Um, it, the, the movement is, is really full of of these people. And, and I argue if you really care about the conservative cause, then you need to help police this and out these people. And um, that's one of the things I try to do in this book. Uh, you know, on the left, people criticize Donald Trump as, as a grifter trying to use the white house to line his own pockets, extend the Trump brand, build up the business empires of his, of his children. Um and you know that that message seems to fall on deaf ears to those who are most uh, devoutly behind Trump. Uh, is, uh, is is there something to the what the conservative movement has become, where that kind of behavior is accepted because because they're getting something else out of it in some way? 
I don't know why it, it doesn't work, but it doesn't work. Telling Part of it is you can't tell people, hey, you're dupes. You're being duped um, because that implies that you're being duped. I mean, like you, you have to in order to believe that somebody is a charlatan that is duping you, you must you must logically believe that you are susceptible to being duped. And, and psychologically, that's a very difficult thing for people to do, to admit that they have been hoodwinked. Um, and, and I suspect that's part of it. It doesn't work. You know, the other day at the um, Conservative Political Action Conference, Ted Cruz um, said something to the effect of uh, Donald Trump is Homer Simpson and the Democratic Party is, oh, no, no. He said the Democratic Party is, is the party of Lisa Simpson. And then he was trying to say the Republican Party is the party of everybody else. And he thought he was making fun of the Democratic Party, but he ended up saying that the Republican Party is the party of Homer Simpson, which I think is very true. <laughs> um, and, you know, there's this great episode. This is actually in the one of the early versions of my book was this episode of The Simpsons where um, where there, there's this new guy who shows up working at the power, the Springfield power plant. Um, and, and he comes to have dinner with the Simpsons and he's astound, astounded that, that Homer Simpson is doing so well, you know, he's got a job at the power plant and he has a beautiful wife and he's got a family. And, uh, this guy ends up basically going crazy and committing suicide, um, because he cannot believe that, that everything just works out for Homer Simpson. And, that's sort of the state of, of a lot of the critics uh, who are trying to say, like, can't you see that this guy is an idiot? Can't you see? And yet he keeps getting promoted at the, at the power plant. You know, it just it doesn't seem to work to tell people, um, you know, hey, you're, you're being you're being taken to the cleaners here. You're you know, um, I'm, I'm not sure what the answer to that is. Um, I feel like part of my job is to just document it and then. If people choose not to accept it, then that's on them. Uh, you, do, you do seem to want to end your book on a hopeful note. Um, you do want to give people some guidance to how to keep the traditional conservative uh, torch aflame. Uh, is, is there a community of conservatives who, even if, even if they are squeamish or outright hostile to um, Donald Trump's leadership of the Republican Party and, and conservatism, uh, what are they saying? Are they sticking together? Do they see light at the end of the tunnel or, uh, is, or, or is pessimism starting to creep in and people feel like maybe there's nothing we can do here. And then the, the conservatism is going to end up in the dustbin of history because of what Trump has done to it. Well, look, I think that, um, you know, I think it'd be naive to think that you can, you know, we didn't get into this mess overnight. We're not going to fix it overnight. Um, you know, what's, you know, the conservatism with the uh, the S being the dollar sign, as I write in the book, you know, conservatism Inc. may have been um, perverted and and uh, and and Donald Trump may have you know taken over the, the Republican big Republican Party. Um, and there may not be much we can do for it anytime in the near future. But, you know, look, this again, we didn't get into this mess overnight. Um, we we're not going to fix it overnight. But. Things change. I mean, in, in 1974, Republicans were embroiled in the Watergate scandal and you had Richard Nixon as the president and the Republican brand was was 
pretty much decimated. Um, and then uh, six years later, you get Ronald Reagan. So uh, we don't know what the future may hold. You know, it, it's possible that Donald Trump will lose re-election in 2020 and that uh, that there'll be a uh, the, the de-Trumpism of the Republican Party will will take effect. And, you know, Ben Sass will be <laughs> you're going to have like a, a a cool, young, cosmopolitan conservative um I mean, he probably might reject the cosmopolitan label. He's from Nebraska, but but uh, uh, you know, a guy who is is a is an intellectual conservative and a real conservative elected president, and will let the good times roll. Like you know, it's really hard to say what the future may hold. Um, so I hold out hope for that. But right now, I think that that this is like a government in waiting, and you know what we need to do is is protect the brand of conservatism. Uh, it can't, don't allow it to be corrupted and tarnished by Trumpism. Um, look, and I don't think we need to be the resistance that opposes everything Trump does. If Trump does something good, then great. But we have to, you know, keep the, keep the flame alive, keep the spark alive. Uh, don't let it become co-opted or corrupted or tarnished by Trumpism. And, um, you know, let it emerge when, uh, when the time is right, timing is so important in politics. And, um, you know, I, I just, I believe that, you know, I believe that conservatism, the, the ideas, uh, that, that these are, are political truisms that are universally, you know, true and, and that they will bring about the most virtue and the most prospering and the most human flourishing. So I don't, Look, if, if, if the world rejects that right now, if the Republican Party rejects that right now, doesn't mean that these ideas aren't true or aren't good. They'll be back. Um, and so I, I, I'm OK with going through a little bit of time in the wilderness because I'm, I'm you know, I'm a true believer in, in that cause. Uh, the book is Too Dumb to Fail, uh, published by Hachette. The author is Matt Lewis. Uh, Matt, where can people find your other work? So uh, I'm a. Uh, columnist at the Daily Beast. Please read my stuff there. I am a political commentator at CNN. Please watch me there. And uh, I have a podcast called Matt Lewis and the News, where I interview interesting people. And you can find me on Twitter at Matt K. Lewis. How many people who listen to your podcast get your uh, the Huey Lewis parallel that you're trying to make there? Let me say there is no Huey Lewis para, uh, parallel, and and I and if Mr. Lewis wants to dispute that in a court of law, uh, I will point out to him that uh, that my name is Matt Lewis, and we do talk about news. And if he has a problem with it, I will name my podcast "The Power of Love." So take that. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Matt Lewis. This has been the New Books in Politics podcast. I'm your host, Bill Share. Uh, we'll we'll catch you back soon. Thank you.